Primary Care Knowledge Boost, COVID-19, Episode 9, Suspected Cancer During COVID-19. Welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This is the last in our COVID series for the time being, and we hope you've all found them useful and that they've helped a little over this evolving situation at the moment. We're going to take a short break for the next couple of weeks, and then we'll be back in June with our normal clinical content from before COVID, starting with fibromyalgia part two. Um, And in the meantime, we really recommend that you check out fibromyalgia part one, which is a really, really interesting listen. It's long-awaited fibromyalgia part two, which is all about the management. And I have really enjoyed that episode, recording and editing it. And lots of little tips in there that I've used in practice that have really, really helped with chronic pain. Yeah, Check it out once it's out. Uh, today, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Taylor and Dr. Vera Mehta about assessing, investigating and referring patients with suspected cancer during the pandemic. Um, so we talk about the challenges of assessing patients over the phone helpful tips around who we might want to assess face-to-face and if anything has changed around the processes of investigating and referring patients. Yeah, it's it's a really important topic and an area that does continue to evolve, but we find it helpful to go through what the current situation is and we hope you do too. Um, So we always start with some introductions. So do you guys want to let everyone know who you are today? I'm Viru Mehta. I'm a GP in Cheadle, Stockport, Greater Manchester, and I'm clinical director at Stockport CCG, and I'm also clinical director for our local primary care network. I'm Sarah Taylor. I'm a GP in Fallowfield in Manchester and the Cancer Research UK Cancer Diagnosis Lead for Greater Manchester. So today we're talking all about cancer during this COVID time, um, and we thought we'd start with just an open question about why it's important to talk about this subject today. So I think um, certainly over the past few weeks, we've seen lots of national data suggesting that the number of cancer presentations has gone down quite significantly. And I think for lots of us, that's quite a big concern. So I think we were keen to have this podcast just for people to start thinking about as we ease out of lockdown, especially how we can ensure that we're picking up potential cancer presentations as quickly as possible and thinking about how we get them referred in, investigated and treated um, also. So um, really great to have Sarah on the call to, to help us discuss that. So we thought we'd break the discussion down into, first of all, assessing for cancer remotely and then investigating and referrals because it seems like each part of the process has slightly changed. Yeah. Um, so if we start with assessing for cancer remotely, how have you approached this? I think one of the things that's changed hugely over the last few weeks is the number of phone and video assessments that we've been doing. Uh, I think they're a perfectly acceptable way of assessing patients. Uh, there are obviously some limitations and we need to be aware of those as we speak to people. But I think that it's it's a good way of working out what to do. One of the things that concerns me is that we don't have the non-visual cues that somebody might have something additional that they want to talk about and that phone consultations can be much more transactional than face-to-face consultations. And I think we need to be aware of that and just listening out for those pauses, verbal cues that might suggest that somebody's got something else that they want to discuss with us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important idea. Um, quite often when we're speaking to people who've got concerns about potential cancer symptoms, you know, that they're really anxious. And normally we would be doing most of these consultations face to face. And you may have heard our previous podcasts sort of thinking about video consultations and also our end of life podcast where we talked about 
1D, 2D and 3D consultations. I think this is one area where video is really helpful to pick up some of those nonverbal cues that you're not able to get with with a patient in the room with you. I think the other thing to consider is, by and large, with a lot of cancer referrals previously, it was quite standard that we would have examined the patient. And I think at the moment, our steer really has been, you know, when you're thinking about general practice as a cold site in terms of COVID management, that you think about whether bringing that patient down to examine them will change your management in terms of how you'll deal with a patient. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I think we need to consider in the assessment is the overlap between um, suspected lung cancer and suspected COVID. Yeah. There's quite a lot of concern that obviously lung cancer in Greater Manchester is a very, very big cause of premature death and the symptoms overlap. So we need to be really careful that actually patients who are at risk of having lung cancer are assessed in the way that we would normally do it. There have been some guidelines drawn up by the Greater Manchester Cancer Lung Pathway Board just to help us with that, which is just suggesting that any patient who's got cough without fever, who's got fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain, appetite loss, that we consider lung cancer as well. So I think it's something that's really important for GPs to consider that not every cough is COVID at the moment. Yeah, Yeah. really important to highlight that, I think. Yeah, that's really helpful, Sarah. In terms of how, so if you did have a patient who presented to you you know, we know that lots of patients with COVID aren't getting a fever and they, you know, the symptoms can be quite vague in keeping with a cancer presentation. So how would you handle somebody who p- perhaps reports a, a three-week history of sort of respiratory symptoms that you think might be COVID, but you're not sure? I suppose one of the things you think about is there are other risk factors for lung cancer. So obviously you'd be much more concerned in an older smoker than in somebody who was younger and had never smoked. So that would be one of the things I would think about. Obviously the absence of other COVID-related symptoms like fever or loss of smell, taste, that sort of thing, which are sort of associated with COVID. And I think then it's probably important if you've, if you've got any doubt, we don't want to be sending the potential COVID patients if they're well to be having an x-ray but that's where the sort of safety netting in general practice becomes massively important so if you've got a patient who you think might have covid but you're concerned that it might be a lung cancer then we probably need to be using fairly robust safety netting procedures to remind ourselves in two or three weeks time that we need to be calling them back and if they've still got the cough referring them for a chest x-ray then so i think it's a combination of risk factors for lung cancer, lack of other symptoms of COVID. And then just if you're not sure, just making sure you safety net them. Just whilst we're talking about this, chest x-rays, is that kind of the first port of call now? Or is that just more for people who are a bit borderline with their symptoms? Are you still doing two-week waits for lung cancer? I referred a patient with hemoptysis who was offered a CT straight off. Um, But the rest of the patients, I think it would be a case of actually sending them for a chest x-ray in the normal way. All the national guidance is that we follow NG12 as we did pre-COVID. Obviously, some of that assessment is being done remotely, but actually we still follow the same guidance, which would be chest x-ray is the first point of call. And then if you've got concerns afterwards, um, sending them on anyway. Okay, lovely. That's good to clarify. I think the uh, other thing, just I suppose while, while we're talking about lung cancers, was I found that COVID is a real opportunity when it comes to smoking cessation. So, you know, just think about 
making sure you're asking that question and just asking if people are willing to give um, smoking cessation a try because they're not out in pubs at the moment. Um, yeah, there is a lot of concern about smoking and COVID. So, you know, it's worth just considering that as an opportunity really and, you know, support them as you would do with the smoking cessation support. Yeah. Have you heard of any other kind of tips or any other creative ways of trying to assess people at the moment? I know a lot of the dermatology referrals are being done on the basis of a photo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that works quite well. The dermatologists are quite enjoying being able to look at things beforehand. And if we can send photos, I think that's quite acceptable. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, certainly I've been looking at lots of skin lesions over video with variable success. Sometimes the quality of the video doesn't quite get you there. So we've often been asking patients to supplement that with a photograph that they email in. So you may be aware that the BMA has released some guidance around the use of photographs um, and and remote monitoring and how you might store those things on the medical records. So, you know, I'm sure we can can put that link on to, to the podcast after that. So just be aware of that. And just think about the the site that you're taking a, a photo of. Just be careful if it's a child, for example. So you, using those things in mind, photographs can be really helpful. If you're in Greater Manchester, then lots of practices are using a portal called MDSAS, which is a teledermatology platform that you can use to send images to um, the consultants at Salford Royal, who are our local dermatology service. But I'm sure lots of people around the country will have similar platforms. So that's really helpful in terms of the, the dermatologist being able to triage those initial referrals and then make a decision as to how urgently that person might need to be seen. And we have touched a little bit there on um, on guidelines. You mentioned about how the advice is that we should follow um, the NICE guidance as before in terms of two-week group referrals. Um, but has there been any changes to any guidelines that we need to be aware of or is it keep going with what you did before? It is entirely keep going as we did before. And I know that certainly within Greater Manchester, the advice is very strongly refer everybody that you would have referred before. Those patients, for a variety of reasons, a lot of patients will be assessed initially over the telephone so patients can be reassured that they don't necessarily have to go to a hospital um, and then there's a an individual patient decision I think to be made with each patient whether the risks of the potential cancer versus their risks of COVID and so if you've got a patient who's got an iron deficiency anemia who's in their early 60s with no more comorbidities investigating that is probably the most important thing for them at the time if the patient's in their mid 80s and has multiple comorbidities, then it may be better to defer investigations. But what we have agreed, and I think this is an agreement, it's certainly within Greater Manchester, but it's I think it's agreed nationwide that those patients will then be held within the hospital system and tracked and then contacted at a time when it's safe for them to be investigated. So I think that GPs and patients need to be reassured that there's a balance to be met with each patient and that's being addressed as the patients go through the system. There's also some discussion about where the safest place to investigate patients is. Over the last few weeks, not that many patients have been investigated. Some have, but not that many. But over the next few weeks, that number is going to go up. Um, and I think that, that a lot of hospitals are looking at clean sites, which are hopefully COVID-free to investigate. Some of those are going to be in smaller community hospitals. Some of those might be within the independent sector, and some of them might be within trusts. And I think that that's also a really important thing for us to be able to reassure our patients about. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. So does that mean, Sarah, that some of the people that we're referring in 
we'll still be having that kind of uh, risk benefits discussion with the secondary care team. So they're in the hospital system from there and they, they will pick up investigations from there because I'm kind of doing that bit of risk benefit analysis kind of with patients at the moment. I think we should refer everybody that we would have referred pre-COVID. I think it's useful to have those discussions with the patients before we refer them and to let secondary care know the outcome of those discussions because that will then influence their discussions. And I think that obviously, as we tend to know the patients better, that's really beneficial. But then somebody else will also have those discussions with the patient and help them decide what the best thing for them to do at the moment is. And obviously, you know, we refer with a basically a sort of 5% risk of cancer. Um, so 95% of these patients won't have cancer. Those that have got cancer, their symptoms are likely to progress. And we need then to be able to expedite those investigations if patient symptoms progress. I think the other thing with that um, sort of risk benefit discussion is, you know, remember, you may be having that initial discussion over the phone. And the initial discussion that the se- that secondary care has may also be over the phone. Mm. So sometimes two bites at the cherry is quite useful when you've not got that person in front of you and you've not got those nonverbal cues in the same way. So quite often warning patients at that first contact may be over the phone when they're previously just expected to go to the hospital and asking them to have prepared the list of questions that they may ask because sometimes phone calls sort of start and are over before you kind of really realise you don't have that same coming into the waiting room, sitting down, having that opportunity before you get up and walk out the door to ask that last question. So I've been telling patients just to write down those sorts of questions that might want to ask, um, Mm. be really clear about next steps and when they might um, expect and how they'll be communicated with from the hospital, I think is really important. I think for lots of people who are you know, often stuck at home, it feels really uncertain when they're waiting for that letter to drop through the door, if that's what they're waiting for. So just guiding them through that process, I think is really important. And we've touched on how um, the situation has changed a lot with COVID and and the remote working and the more telephone calls and the more video consultations. When you've got somebody that you're considering cancer in or it's on the edge, you're really not certain. um, Is there any advice or help about how to try and triage who you should be seeing face to face? So I think coming back to that approach of um, you know, when you're tri- triaging somebody over the phone, so the first question is, would a video consultation be helpful? And if it is, hopefully you've all of us on the call have got that opportunity to start a video consultation. And I think if you're dealing with sensitive discussions where you're, you know, discussing a potential cancer referral, I find video really helpful just to be able to have that non-verbal communication with somebody. And it's just really helpful in managing some of the anxiety. I seem to find that they'll ask questions more willingly. Quite often in a face-to-face consultation, we tend to use silence a lot, but actually on, on the phone, that could be quite awkward. Whereas actually, you know, being able to use that on video is really helpful. So I think that's the first decision. The second decision then is, would this person benefit from a a face-to-face appointment? So I think the first is, will a face-to-face appointment change my management? Will I be able to do an examination that will help guide as to whether this person needs a two-week weight referral or not? The second thing is sometimes it can genuinely just be technology. You know, if you've got someone who is hard of hearing and you just can't manage that consultation remotely safely, then of course, bring them down with PPE, you know, keeping the time in the surgery to a minimum. Um, That's sort of the approach that I think most practices are taking. 
Thank you very much. There's a few things that we kind of clumped some of these symptoms in a question together. So for people reporting lumps and bumps, essentially, um, how much faith are people putting in self-reported symptoms over the phone versus coming in to see people? So, for example, with a breast lump or um, neck lumps and things like that. So I think that's a really, really good question. Um, so testicular lumps, for example, I've not been asking people to turn the video on to have a look at those. Um, yeah. I, I have been asking them to come down to the practice and just to give myself the reassurance that, that I'm feeling. Breast lumps is interesting um, because actually quite often, regardless of what my examination findings are, quite often with breast lumps, you're making a referral anyway. Um, yeah. So even though I think it might feel really alien to us as GPs to not examine the lump before you refer, I would always come back to if you are going to do a two week wait referral anyway on the basis of symptoms and what the patient's reporting, even if you didn't feel a lump on the day, then will bringing them down change your management dramatically? I think for neck lumps, um, equally, um, quite often, actually, examination can be really helpful in terms of determining what you might do. You know, is it a thyroid lump or is it a, a lymph node? So in that case, you, um, you know, it might be better to bring them down. The other thing about neck lumps is quite often blood tests are quite helpful for a neck lump. That's the other thing I've been telling certainly my GPs in my practice to do is if you bring somebody down for a face-to-face consultation, try and get everything done in one visit if you can. So if you, if you're seeing them in the practice anyway, can somebody do their blood tests at the same time for most two week wait referrals? Because these days, if they need a potential CT scan, if they need a gastroscopy, if they need a colonoscopy, quite often we'll want a UNE done beforehand anyway. So if you can get all those things done at once, that avoids an unnecessary trip or a potential delay in an investigation for that patient. I certainly think in relation to the breast lumps, there are certain areas that have tried women's self-referral. So women over the age of maybe 40 or 50 being able to self-refer with breast lumps, because as you were saying, you're probably going to refer them anyway. I think that if somebody was a little bit younger, I might be more inclined to see them and assess them because you may not be referring, you might be reviewing after the next period, um, as the guidelines suggest. But certainly there's, there's self-referral systems for women over the age of 40 and 50 in quite a lot of areas. So we, I think that going ahead and just referring them is a reasonable thing to do. And in terms of, we talked a little bit there about investigations and it is a little bit different now. We're not doing the same routine investigations that we would have done before, sending people for chest x-rays or ultrasounds and things. Um, do we know what, what actually is available in Greater Manchester to be able to refer for? I think it, it, did change but I think that the very strong steer now is that everything should be going back to normal and we should have access to the same things that we had before so I think if you'd asked this question four weeks ago I'd have been quite unsure as to what was going on but I think over the last week or two all the CCGs across the whole country are now working to get the level of investigation back up to what it was before and obviously there'll be some level of priority in that and the suspected cancer referrals would be at the top of that. So I think that GPs should now be able, certainly over the next week or two, to be able to get the investigations they could get before. Obviously, there are still the issues about patients who are shielding and whether they should be going and the safest way of doing that. But actually, the availability of the investigation should now be there. 
Okay, brilliant. So I think certainly across most NHS trusts, that capacity is being put in and those trusts recognise that there's almost a bit of a backlog that needs to be caught up on. The one area where it might be worth checking in your area is where you've perhaps had direct access to investigations outside the sort of standard hospital trust sector. So if you've had direct access to ultrasound, direct access to gastroscopy in the community, it's worth checking with your individual provider there won't be any community gastroscopy offered anywhere at the moment, I don't think, because there's still national guidance being brought out on gastroscopy and colonoscopy, and there's limited access to that within trust. So I don't think that any of the community providers will be offering that yet, although hopefully again over the next few weeks that will be available. Yeah. And kind of on that note, um, a couple of questions I've had have been patients kind of older women that might have some bloating symptoms or urinary symptoms that ordinarily think about investigating for ovarian pathology, which you might do by a CA125 and an ultrasound scan. Given that the ultrasound scans have been difficult to arrange, I guess this might not be quite as relevant now that things are kind of returning to normal. It's just a general point about any advice for where we can't do what we'd normally do with investigations. Is there any advice about how to kind of work our way through that? I think if you can't do what you would normally do and you're concerned, you should go ahead and refer and explain why you can't do what you would normally do, because I think it's really important that these people don't get lost. And certainly the trusts have better access to some of these investigations than we do in the community. So I think if you've got a patient you're concerned about, you should make the referral and leave the assessment to somebody who may have better access to stuff than we do. That kind of links into my next question because I was going to ask, is there uh, more flexibility around red flag symptoms and two-week referrals at the moment? So if people don't quite fit the parameters that you would normally stick to for a referral, but there's a bit of concern, are hospitals being a little bit more flexible with who they're accepting? I think they would always say that they're flexible about what they accept anyway, as long as you've explained why you're concerned. You know, I would say that if you've got a 35-year-old who's got altered bowel habit but has a family history of bowel cancer, then actually they may not fit the guidelines, but they need to be referred if they've got symptoms. And I think that, that you can refer outside of NICE guidance. It is guidance. I think it's just really important that you explain why you're concerned. So in terms of referring people to secondary care, I, I hadn't appreciated that um, people were getting telephone calls, actually. Can you talk us through some of the other things that have changed in terms of what patients would expect once you've done a two-week wait for them? I think one of the biggest things that's changed, obviously, apart from the fact that a lot of them are being initially assessed over the phone, is that a lot of people are having investigations deferred until a future point, And that's particularly relevant in the lower GI pathway with um, patients who need a colonoscopy. A lot of the trusts are now starting to use the FIT, the immunochemical testing, to prioritise patients within that pathway. At the moment, it's done in primary care in certain areas of the country for low-risk patients. But this is looking at it in high-risk patients just to prioritise mm. colonoscopy once it becomes available. So the patients who are at higher risk have the colonoscopies first. That's secondary care that's doing that. That's not primary care. It is. It, it's being done entirely in secondary care and GPs won't have any part of it. The, the kits are being posted out by the secondary care teams for the patients to do. And it is just to prioritise the pathway. The patients who have a negative fit will still be kept on the pathway and offered investigations further down the line. It's just to 
work out who to do first. Yeah. And I think this is just one example, I suppose, of the transformation happening in secondary care. Those of us who've been trying to work with secondary care around outpatient reform, actually, we're seeing, just as we are in primary care, some really innovative solutions being kind of brought forward quite quickly. And I think that this is just one example of where secondary care are really starting to think about their role in triage of referrals as they're coming in um, and thinking about how they could reduce the number of contacts that a patient might have in terms of their attendance at secondary care. So I think the concept of thinking about whether somebody could go straight to test will become increasingly important. So that's why it's really important when we refer people in, we consider... I suppose, where possible, what we feel their fitness for that test might be. So, you know, if you've got some information about somebody's frailty, about their mental capacity when it comes to consent, you know, it's really helpful, I think, to put all that information into your referral because the secondary care clinician might not be doing that face-to-face appointment in the same way and obviously won't have the history that you have with that particular patient potentially. So any extra information you can put in is helpful where you've got information about carers and next of kin, that also might become really helpful. For example, if they can't get hold of a patient on the phone, knowing that you've got consent for them to contact their daughter or son, for example, might be really helpful in terms of chasing things down and avoiding things being kind of passed back to general practice to chase up. It's really interesting to um, also think about what you tell the patient when you're doing the referral now. It's not following the classical oh, you're going to get an appointment and go and see a consultant. It's it's all changed. Um, and I, I think patients might not know that yet. So telling them is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we give patients realistic expectations about what's likely to happen. Yeah. There are lots of patients who are going to be assessed and possibly treated outside of their normal hospital which I think patients need to be aware of uh, and they're not no- always keen to do that but actually at the moment probably if they feel it's safer they will be and so I think it's just you know making sure we make the expectations clear to patients so that they know what might happen. Yeah that has been odd going I'm not quite sure where you're going to be going. <laughs> Absolutely and, and, and as I say a lot of alliances are trying to set up cold sites for surgery mm-hmm. so that patients will go to one or two hospitals within the whole alliance area to have their cancer surgery. I think the other thing to consider for obviously this is further down the pathway but potential urgent surgery lots of trusts are thinking about how that might happen. So if you've got a cold site, then clearly they don't want COVID positive patients going to that site. So lots of hospitals are thinking about, well, how do we get a swab done for COVID prior to admission? They might ask um, some patients to shield quite intensively for two weeks prior to admission. Okay. Some some trusts are even thinking about doing a CT in some cases prior to admission specifically to exclude COVID. So Again, it's all very early days yet, but these are some of the questions that we might get asked about. So find out what your local trust is doing um, regarding some of this in terms of where they're seeing and what the process might be prior to admission, just in case patients do ask. Did you say a CT to exclude COVID? Yeah, my husband's a radiologist at the Christie and they're doing CTs in some of the high risk patients prior to surgery, just so that they know before they start what to do. Wow, yeah. And I think the the basis for that is what we know about um, surgical outcomes in COVID patients, you know, so being as sure as we can be, I suppose, that this patient hasn't got COVID before embarking on, on surgery. And also the potential impact of having a COVID positive patient in a cold site. Yeah. Um, that's why I think hospitals are taking it quite rightly so seriously. 
Um, and this is a nice broad question, but um, how do you see the situation with cancer referrals and investigations evolving? The number of suspected cancer referrals is starting to go back up. Um, it's nowhere near where it was before, but it is starting to go back up. But I think, as we suggested earlier, I think it's going to change everything. Uh, I think that some of the things that we've wanted to do for a long time, like triage of referrals straight to test will change and I think that's all for the good I think that follow-up of cancer patients will change as well Mm -hmm. and you know patients are reporting actually having had some of their best follow-up appointments ever over the phone Mm -hmm. because they don't have to sit in a waiting room they can speak to somebody who knows their case and it's it's quicker and easier for them so I think everything is going to change as as a result of this and I think some of it's going to be for the better. I think before the the takeaway points, I suppose the other thing that I just wanted to mention was cancer screening. Mm. I'd be really interested to ask Sarah what her view is on cancer screening and how she's managing that in her practice, uh, particularly thinking about cervical screening. The screening programmes have all been paused during the last few weeks as the COVID crisis started. They're all looking at resuming. I think the cervical screening is a really difficult one. My advice to practices at the moment would be that they try and concentrate on their high risk patients. So the patients who have had abnormal changes in the past and are on early recalls. With regard to everybody else, I think that we should probably wait for national guidance for the rest of those patients because I don't think it's clear at the moment. Great, thank you. So as a kind of final point, what would you like our listeners to take away from today's discussion? So my point would very strongly be that GPs should refer in the same way to the same nice guidance as they did pre-COVID. And I think for me, it's, you know, use your same clinical criteria for referrals, but consider that we are consulting with patients in different ways. Think about video consultation, especially with some of these sensitive consultations, and only bring patients down to your practice for a face-to-face appointment if it's going to change your management. And, And let patients know that they're pathway will be different to normal Mm -hmm. and that we don't ourselves don't have all of the answers whilst you know things are still being planned but that just to keep updated as as much as as they can and be ready to ask the questions that they need answered um, when they have those consultations which again may not be face to face with the hospital brilliant well thank you guys for taking the time out to talk to us about a really 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 important topic today yeah thank you so much Thank thank you very much thank you it was really great to speak to Vera and again and get Sarah onto the chat today um, and hear all of their interesting points about cancer during this time. Um, what did you take away from today, Sarah? Yeah, I really enjoyed the whole episode. Um, the main message about referring as normal was really interesting because I, I have been weighing up the decisions a bit differently just in terms of risk benefits. So yeah. uh, knowing that they're doing that in secondary care as well and that they're calling people really helps kind of my thought processes around referrals. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it was a a good message to get across that it is refer as normal, do everything that you would normally do. And you don't have to take on that full responsibility yourself of doing that kind of risk analysis that the hospital will do that and they'll keep the patients on their lists and then get back in contact with them. I think that was really good to take on board. Yeah, And then also just interesting again to acknowledge the whole change to telephone consultation and the benefits that you really do get out of face-to-face consultations. I think it's come up in almost every episode we've done during COVID Yeah, and really the usefulness of, of video for those cues um, was really important. Yeah, it was definitely. And I um, personally have really struggled with people with coughs and 
kind of thinking about two-week waits and lung cancers. So it was really lovely to cover that. Thinking about helpful ways of reviewing patients over the phone again or specific safety netting to try and help. Yeah, definitely. It was really nice to go through that. And um, I think also important to think about the setting expectations, um, both for patients and for, for yourself. I think that things have changed and secondary care isn't going to be the same as it was and how important it is to tell patients what they're in for, what the journey is going to be like for them as much as you can. Obviously, we don't know everything that's going to happen, but just to share that uncertainty with them, I think is really important. Absolutely. Um, so if you'd like to get in touch with us, any questions, thoughts, queries, um, you can find us on Twitter at PCKB podcast, or you can email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. And as always, we also have our survey monkey survey and we'll put the link in the episode description. And that's a way just to get in touch with us anonymously. Um, if you want to give us any feedback or any suggestions, and um, we'll put all the links that we've discussed in the episode, um, in the episode description as well. So you can find them there. Indeed. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, the content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode. <laughs>